Hi everyone, welcome to Training with Casey, where we explore animal training and living our best lives with animals. I'm Joseph Laughlin, producer of this podcast, and now here's your host, Casey Covert. Let's get started. Hey, welcome everybody. Um, welcome to Training with Casey. I'm your host, Casey Covert, and I am very excited because tonight I have a special guest. Um, my colleague and friend, Julie Alexander. And before I actually bring Julie on, I want to tell you uh, some of the things that I know about her. Julie and her husband, Mark, were actually the breeders of two of my dogs, and they were excellent dogs. And not only were they absolutely stable and wonderful in their behavior, but they also were extremely well-trained, which they came to me trained, which is quite a uh, luxury for me. And they were very healthy for their entire lives. And both of them lived to be over 10 years old. And Duncan lived to be 13 or just short of it. And Callista, uh, her life was unnaturally shortened because she ran in a field that had been sprayed. She just broke off and suddenly ran in this field just for a couple of minutes. But nonetheless, uh, within three years, she was dead of um, a cancer that's associated with glyphosate. So she had transitional cell bladder carcinoma. So I think the way Callista was doing, she would have gone strong for many more years had she not gotten the cancer. And Callista was a crossbred Doberman. She was a Doberman cross with a Beauceron. And so the way I met Julie was in some of the online communities that I had. Um, she would bring forth this really brilliant well-considered information and uh, advice on what to do with the information. And then as we became friends and I had the opportunity to get dogs from her, I was so delighted to do that and I never regretted it. And I was really gratified to learn that Julie believes in open registries. I think we all should. And so I know this can be controversial. I understand if you love to show dogs and um, you, you know, you enjoy being part of some of the, you know, registries that are restricted. But I think we're at the point where we also have to realistically look at what we do to dogs when we close the registries. So when I was a kid, I was a member of the AKC and I showed dogs and you know all this. I would seriously have to think about it before I ever did that again. So now I'd like to introduce my friend and colleague, Julie Alexander, who describes herself instead of the way I would as an absolutely brilliant mind that can 
sees and process the details of biochemistry and even physics and dog genetics and all these other things. She describes herself as a person with eclectic interests and an absolute data junkie. Welcome, Julie. Thank you for coming. So, hey, Casey. Hello, folks. So good to be here and talking about uh, genetics, behavior, what happens when we get depleted gene pools, yeah. how can we open them and keep the traits that we need. Yeah. Did you want to add anything else to your what I said about you or your introduction? Don't take her too literally. I don't want to get a big head. <laughs> oh, that's great. I don't think you're in danger of that. So um, uh, I'll say just a little bit more. Julie has really focused on life scientists and on, and on uh, the effect of nutrition, so the effect of genetics on animal behavior and health and the effect of nutrition on animal behavior and health. And of course, that's extremely important if you're going to breed dogs. And it's an education that many breeders do not cultivate. Uh, just genetics is a complex subject. So I had to take genetics at a very rigorous school and they bragged about the fact that 50% of the class would flunk out of genetics because they couldn't master the subject in time to, <laughs> to get good grades on the test. So we're gonna um, talk about breeding dogs, open and closing the registry, and especially how it affects the nutrition, biochemistry, and hormones, and how those affect cognition and behavior. And uh, Julie raised the question, and we're not gonna talk about this in detail tonight, but keep it in mind as we do talk, are depleted diets a big part of the reason that we have genetic and behavioral issues? So Julie, I remember one of the um, examples you brought up was your vet who, he was a great guy anyway, wonderful vet. And he was telling you that by making sure that the dairy cows had access to free selenium, it affected yes. the milk production significantly. Do you want to address that? His family farm had been one of like the top 10 producers in Washington state several times. And when he entered vet school, he was telling the vets there, if you offer them a mineral lick with selenium so they can choose when they wanted it, they were getting about four pounds of milk extra each week times 200 cattle times 50 weeks a year. That was a lot. Yeah. They pretty much ignored him. But by the time he was done with that school, that was part of the nutrition program. Wow. So this trace mineral, and it was an area where selenium was low in the soil, 
So it was going to be low in the feed. Yeah. Offering them selenium um, was increasing the productivity. Wow. Interesting. And you have helped many people with um, understanding and figuring out how to manage problems like, uh, I, I know people debate about whether to call it rage syndrome or what, but uh, just outbursts of rage in a spaniel. The, the Springer rage syndrome that appears from everything I've heard to have been traced back to one popular sire and it's linked with epilepsy. Mm. And in the one dog that we were both working with, his owner was highly skilled. She was doing a great job with trying to do the yeah. perception modification, but the dog was still becoming highly reactive, changing his diet to lower protein and giving him the 5-HTP tryptophan with some bread to help bump up his serotonin, calmed him down and gave her the edge to be able to have the perception modification work. It took a while. I think she said it took about two years for him to calm down and have his whole adrenal system calm down and relax. She finally got her rally O title with him. Three out of three shows, he went high score and title two of the shows. And the most critical part was after all that excitement, he did not start going over the top again. He stayed wow. calm after that. Wow. He's also the only dog in the litter that was not put down early. He lived out his natural lifespan. The rest had either been put down because of having seizures. Uh, and I think most of those actually had been turned to the breeder. She agreed to take them back, but they were having seizures badly enough to warrant letting them go. Or they had been put down for biting people before that. Wow. So it was a link with it. And how much of it, though, had to do with an extra biological need for more serotonin and the 5-HTP tryptophan was giving the precursor and they needed to have a lower protein diet. The low protein, uh, the high protein will wind up creating more dopamine and norepinephrine, more go juice. And you had the chickens that had the high tryptophan feed. Yeah. And what happened oh, yeah. when you ran out of that? <laughs> they attacked my mom. <laughs> she had it coming because <laughs> she forgot her key to the house. And she called me at the lab and she said, you need to go to the house and let me in. And I said, mom, just stop by the lab. I can't leave. And she didn't feel like she wanted to do that. So she decided instead to break into our house through the back bathroom window, which to her credit, she did. I mean, she was in her mid fifties at the time, but as she was going through the window and letting herself down onto her hands on the bathroom floor, the roosters all jumped up and got her from behind. So I didn't hear the end of that. So uh, if you're going to let your mom go through the back window, it's better to keep your roosters on high tryptophan food. That's the, <laughs> the takeaway on that. Yeah. So 
I want to talk more about nutrition on another talk because this is another fascinating subject, but it kind of segues into uh, your opinion on registries. So are you for keeping the registries open or closed? Open the registries, but have standards, preferably a performance standard for bringing in the new ones. Uh, it's been done in several cases with uh, not just dogs, uh, but to breed in a new trait. The Bobtail 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 Boxer program, a breeder who was a geneticist, crossed in a corgi when they started banning cropping the tails of dogs. Yeah. Uh, and I think within five generations, he had dogs that were accepted by the Kennel Club in Great Britain and was showing them in performance. He was showing them in the shows and they were winning. Yeah. Uh, and so he has a very detailed program on the Bobtail Boxer Project, how to bring in one physical trait. Um, other dogs, uh, breeds that have had their registries opened up. I believe it was in Europe, the Landseer cousin to the Newfoundland. I uh, got together with uh, some geneticists because they were having health issues and they decided to start crossing in other breeds to be able to expand the gene pool and get rid of the health issues. Um, some of the things with um, going into the origins of some breeds and how they would do crossbreeding to bring into a trait, I believe in it was with, in the beginning. Yeah, I think it was they, they, uh, every one of these breeds is an artificial creation. Yes. German Shepherds were a mix of breeds. Uh, Doberman was a mix of breeds. With the Border Collie, I, if I remember correctly, to bring in I, that was needed, they brought in, uh, I think it was either a pointer or a setter, something uh -huh. that had the stare. Yeah. That, that was one of the traits that they need to be able to herd that style. And then the European herding dogs, I have a very different style of herding. That's where the calm grip comes in, grabbing the sheep by the fleece, and pulling it into position because they're not barking and nipping at heels the way some other herding dogs would be doing for them. They want to keep them out of the crops. Hmm. And so they have to have this trait of being able to grab them carefully and pull them into place. But it's not a grip that is trying hard to bite. It's a control. It's a come here kid rather than trying to clamp down and create an injury. Yeah. Uh, you described the purpose of a breed and what caused you to go to uh, breeding outside, you know, to opening your own uh, breeding program and crossbreeding. And I really loved it. And um, can, do you remember what it is that? The purpose of a breed is to be able to predict certain traits. It may be uh, working traits, behavioral traits. It might be predicting size. It may be predicting the type of coat. Uh, do you need a heavy coat for a cold climate? Do you want a short coat so that it's not shedding? Do you want a poodle coat so it's not shedding? But the purpose is to predict certain traits. 
when it gets to the point where you are predicting unhealthy dogs that are going to die young, give you a big burden, or you're winding up with dogs that are absolutely horrible companions, or they can't do their job, then you need to change the gene pool. Yeah, you need to. And I stopped breeding purebred Dobermans because I could not find bloodlines that had the working traits that I wanted that were likely to live to 10 years old, or I could find dogs that might be able to live to 10 years or longer, but they might make a nice pet, but they did not have the protection instincts that I wanted. Yeah. And uh, I've got to say folks that Julie really accomplished that because Duncan and every dog in his litter uh, lived to be an average of 13 years old. Yeah. And in the uh, crossbred litter with the Beaucerons, uh the one that went longest was Raven, who died just recently at 16. Yeah. Half Beauceron, half Doberman. And Beaucerons were one of the base breeds. So yeah. this wasn't like I was bringing in something different. I was trying to go back to some of the original genetics. Yeah, to bring them in. Bring back in some real, of the traits. There was a real bottleneck in Doberman genetics at some point around the Second World War or something or before that? That happened with almost all of the Guardian breeds, uh, both World War One and World War Two. They were being used up in the military in part, and then also the people who were breeding them during the times of famine, they couldn't afford to breed the dog. They couldn't afford to feed the dogs. And they wound up having to kill a lot of dogs that were not gone to the uh, to the military. So there was genetic Or they got problems. killed by the occupied were, Yes, or they were killed during some of it. So there were huge bottlenecks with both World War, War World Wars with German Shepherds, Dobermans, Bosterons, uh, probably the um, you know, any of the dogs that they were using, probably the Malinois, Dutch Shepherds, um, uh, any of the breeds that they were being used in this sort of military work. And it was creating these bottlenecks. Then you wind into other bottlenecks with, say, only a few dogs, few Dobermans coming over to the United States originally after World War II, breeding German Shepherds, maybe only a few. And just the bottlenecks that would come from, uh, okay, we have an AKC dog now. So we're not going to accept European dogs into the American Kennel Club, even though it's a European breed. And you would yeah. wind up with more and more genetic bottlenecks. Yeah. Inbreeding practices, uh, people doing line breeding. Yes, there can be a purpose for it. But again, it's depleting the genes. And eventually you're going to wind up having temperament problems, health problems. Um, it's just going to just be depleting it too much. Yeah, I... Uh... Remember talking to a breeder, very intelligent person, but uh, decided to start their kennel with a brother-sister pair. And, you know, I had genetics and population management and all this. And I said, aren't you worried about the inbreeding? And she goes, I'm not doing inbreeding. I'm doing line breeding. That's simply a matter of degree. Usually 
they'll start calling inbreeding when you are breeding something like full siblings or a uh, parent to offspring. Well, she was breeding. She was, so that was definitely inbreeding. Line breeding, they tend to call more if you're like breeding cousins. However, it it really doesn't matter. It's still all inbreeding. Yeah. And I if, mean you, <laughs> if you look at the pedigree, they've got mathematical formulas to get into the coefficient of inbreeding that's based off of just the likelihood of how much genetic depletion you're getting. Yeah. I'm not sure how well they've got all of the uh, genetics now available to correlate. The, the real way to do it would be if you could get a full genome and compare it to find out just how much you're getting, you're repeating the same genes and how many genes you've lost. Yeah. And uh, it's so tricky because when I was working with exotic animals at the National Zoo, we were taught that it takes 600 diverse, genetically diverse individuals to form the basis of a stable gene pool. Yeah. But if all of those animals contributing to the gene pool are already the victim of restricted genes, for example, and we can talk about this more later, um, the cheetahs, where all the cheetahs in the world are essentially monoclonal twins. Yeah. Uh, you know, different genders, but they've got the same set of genetics. So I don't care if you had 2000 of these animals until they have more mutations and so forth, you have not increased your genetic diversity. Mm-hmm. So um, when you wanted, and I love the way you put this, you wanted to get away from harming the dogs and cheating the owners, where you sold the owner a dog that was going to be a heartbreak and an incredible financial and experiential and time burden. Because And you brought up one example in particular where this man was really devoted to a wonderful Wheaton Terrier. And he had spent $30,000 on the dog by the time it was like five years old because it was having liver problems. I think it was a liver shunt. Loved the dog, but he was going, you know, I, and it, it, to have to put the dog through all of that. Yeah. The financial burden and the pain going on for the dog to be able and, to and avoid the these things. problem for the dog because, yes. you know, how much of his time is on cage restriction and in hospitalization and how much yeah. pain is there and, yeah, how much activity restriction. And Dobermans are prone to dilated cardiomyopathy, which appears to be related to carnitine, L-carnitine amino acid metabolism. Either there is perhaps some, uh, and I believe boxers also are the prone to the same, mm -hmm. for the same reason, that either there is a metabolic need for much more L-carnitine or their body is somehow not processing and transporting it. Some of the dogs that are starting to show signs of 
the cardiomyopathy if given large amounts of L-carnitine supplement were managing to do better and last longer. Myself, I would prefer that they didn't have to be on that kind of a diet and still have the risk of winding up having sudden dilated cardiomyopathy and be gone. Yeah, I, I knew someone and her Doberman was a beautiful two-year-old male and he, he was out running with her and suddenly dropped and, Yeah, and that's not uncommon. Uh, that if they get any warning, they might get a week or two at the most. So we want to open the registries because the whole process of creating breeds of dogs where you have predictable traits, both behavioral and uh, even form, although you and I are much more interested in behavior and performance, but it requires breeders to be good geneticists. Or go and, talk to the geneticists. Well, they go what be I guided did. by them. That's what I did. I contacted two geneticists to find out which breeds would have some of the traits that I wanted and have gene pools as distantly related as possible because I had two programs that were going. So, um, one of them was working with the Boseron um, to come up in particular, first generation, something very Doberman-like. But the other thing that we wanted was we wanted a uh, yard guardian to be able to breed back into Dobermans. So we had an Akbosh, which had a square build. Some of the livestock guardians are longer build. I wanted the square build close to what the Dobermans had in their square build. Akbosh probably have a little bit of sight hound in it, which gives them that type of a build. They were good with livestock, which is critical with the area that I was living in and our own livestock. They had good alarm instincts, but they didn't bark for entertainment. Uh, and they also, with the climate that we had, there had a coat that could take sleeping in the hay pile yeah. during the winter. And first cross kind of split some of the traits with it. Uh, she would bark at one distance. He would, uh, the male that we kept would bark uh, partway up the hill. The Dobermans would start barking when somebody got to the gate. The first back cross, we got about half the dogs looked more dobe-like outside of color. And their temperament again was acting more like the doves with when they barked, other things. Some of the other ones were much more, again, still more towards what dad looked like uh, and his behavioral traits with it. But when we got into that first back cross, we had dogs that were very dope-like. A uh, couple of them like Amber, we had some different colors, but their build and their uh, basic personality was very much yes. dope-like. Yeah, and I knew Amber and Flash and... Uh, did I meet Raven, I think, in Callista? Then with Callista and stuff with it, and uh, what we were finding about what the traits were that were dope-like. And one of the things that the Boseron, a very Velcro breed, my early dobes were very Velcro. We brought in a European bred 
uh, Doberman who added in some other good traits, but she doesn't have as much of the Velcro trait. We went out walking on the property. The other dogs would be circling back. You're just too stupid to leave on your own. Yeah, yeah, She'd yeah. be more likely to say that I, I'm going to go 100 yards out there and check to see if there's you know, any varmints out there and less concerned with watching my back. Yeah. So the Beauceron put that trait back in more. So it was being able to kind of go for what are the traits that were in my original dobes that I wanted to put back in a little bit more. And being able to find out, you know, which dogs and the dogs that we chose for breeding um, were the ones that, um, yeah, they had the physical and temperament traits that we wanted. This is also going on with breeds of horses, with reopening up the Appaloosas to other breeds and finding the ways to be able to, again, start back crossing them, putting them in a limited registry but finding out which are the ones that have the traits that we want to fix a health problem. Yeah. So we're not out there trying to just uh, create a dog that looks a certain way. No, we're trying to create dogs that can perform a function and maintain good health and long lives and stable behavior. And how how many breeds have been messed up with what we were talking about, the brace phallic in going for the appearance, how many dogs are, have been produced that have horrible health problems, eyes popping out, the throat collapses, not enough headroom, cranial capacity. Yes. Um, Killing like King Cavalier spaniels and yes. So uh, how was the reception of your breeding colleagues and uh, other people to the fact that you wanted to open registries? Well, originally a lot of the uh, better dead than not purebred breeders pretty much wanted to treat me like a heretic. They were going to burn me at the stake, run me out of you know, tar and feather me. Uh, calling me a puppy mill. And it's like, oh, really, I'm pretty much placing these dogs with people for a very minimal amount to make sure that they're covering the price of shots and other things. But telling people, this is a breeding experiment. I want to have people pay just enough so that they're going to take good care of the animals. And I want feedback off of it. But the people were delighted. They said, we love Dobermans. We don't want the health issues. They'd be coming back to me years later saying, I'm so glad this dog is so much like my Doberman and I haven't had a single health problem. That with was it. my experience pretty much. And this was it. So, but more and more, some of the uh, <clears throat> working dog breeders and various different things are starting to do some of the crosses. Um, some of the things that have come up with, uh, well, I th- believe it's even the KNPV uh, Dutch police dog trials. I, they don't care that much if it's a purebred dog. They care about, you know, if it's a mishmash of uh, a Malinois, a Belgian Dutch Shepherd, they don't really care that much. Yeah. I, and some of the other people have been starting to do some custom crosses there have been some breeds that they have started to open up the registries. Um, Lancer was one of them. They got together with a geneticist, 
reopened it. I believe the German Pinscher had reopened the registry, at least in some countries. You mentioned um, the Border Collie Registry. A border Collie Registry will not accept AKC champions into it because the first thing that's going to happen is they lose critical traits for herding. They lose eye and crouch. And it's possible for somebody to go find a rescue dog that herds like a border collie, take it into trials, have it win in trials, it will be accepted into the registry and could become a popular sire. And I because love that. of the way it works. That's the critical factor. Yeah. We we really have to get away from form over function. And so if you're listening with us. And you're thinking, well, what are you talking about? Why would you even say that for some of the people that are maybe uh, new to this? It is hard to overstate how much pain and misery can be introduced by the way we manipulate genetics of others. So one of the cases that um, is pretty well documented is the brachiocephalic traits yes. of dogs like pugs and uh, little French bulldogs and little English bulldogs. So they have the foreshortened nose and the big eyes. And one of the traits that they do have is lots of detail, uh, ability to see detail, but they have lots of problems with breathing, with the construction of their lungs, the construction of their sinus turbinates, um, more of a tendency for um, allergies and infections and asthma and problems with breathing. And related to that genetic change are problems with the heart. So I think the last time I checked, do you remember offhand uh, what the average lifespan was for a little English bulldog? Hmm, I'm not familiar with what it is. Um, I have heard so many stories of the health issues they've had, plus trying to ship these dogs any longer. If you try to ship your dog on a plane anywhere with it, there are many airlines that are refusing to take a lot of breeds because of the risks to the dogs. Yeah. Uh, just the, the problems that are coming up with them. One of the, the gruesome ones is the eyeballs literally popping up. Wow. The eye socket is too shallow for the rounded skull. And in some of these dogs, the, the eye is literally popping out of the socket. Yeah. And I know people, people I love <laughs> that will still go out and select these breeds they adore them. They're cute. They're this, they're that. But it's like, you know, they often lose the dog before it's six years old. Yeah. So I don't uh, know. Other breeds, but Great Danes, breeding them to become really, really large, really, really fast. Uh, they want them to hit maximum size, like by the time they're two years old, so they can get their championship and start breeding them. And I, if, I think that most of them are dying by the time they're seven. Yeah. And a lot of them are dying. Uh, the ones I've known, uh, osteosarcoma. 
Yes. A painful death. So uh, I've seen this also. You mentioned horses, but I saw it in pigs. So believe it or not, there are potbelly pig confirmation contests, or there were. I haven't stayed up with it. And this was a lot of fun for the people. And I can see it being a great thing that way, you know, to create interest in the having the pigs as pets and giving people something to do and so on. But the entire breed in North America was started by a single man who brought in, I believe it was 16 pigs. And these pigs, my dad knew when he was in Vietnam, they were short, small, lard producing pigs that could be reared on the sandpans with the people, you know, with the family that lived on the boat. Mm-hmm. And then when they got to a certain size, they would be slaughtered for lard. And they got put in, I think it was in a zoo in Sweden or something. And this person arranged to buy 16 of them all of that very limited gene pool. And then all of these pigs were black and they created a set of rules that you could only have pigs that were black. If there was any white, it would disqualify the pig. Well, they ended up changing that, thank goodness. And then you had white and black pigs, but I don't, I never saw any other colors let in. But another disaster was created when a judge, based on nothing, certainly not based on an understanding of the physiology or the behavior or the well-being of pigs, decided and announced that they would only, quote-unquote, put up you know, uh, place as winners, pigs that had a very short brachiocephalic nose. So one of the things that happens with brachiocephalic traits is that the sinus turbinates are shortened. And the pig is like a dog is a fantastic uh, olfactory system. And when they make a truffle pig. Exactly. And you shorten those. They're already really prone to rhinotracheitis and other infections of the sinus turbinates. Now you squish those together so that it's a moister environment with less air circulation and everything. And they get sicker and sicker and more pain. And why'd you do that in the first place? And it wouldn't be able to root in the dirt the way it needs. Yeah, that would make it behaviorally satisfied. And yeah. And since the other judges were not so ignorant, mm-hmm. they would base, uh, you know, they'd take the whole picture in. So whether the hor- the pig had a long or a short nose, whoever best represented the breed standard, that is who they would place. 
but this other person on their own, you know, reconnaissance, just like they just arbitrarily decided, regardless of the breed standard, that they would not place the pigs that had the long noses. And I was always really confused why that judge was allowed to continue. Like, where do people, you know, how, do, why do we allow somebody to come in and make a fashion change and use that to dictate what's going to happen to the entire lives of all these animals and their owners. And is it just the fad uh, for Dobermans yep. years ago? They wanted really big Dobermans. Then they wanted to get into very small, much more refined looking Dobermans. Then they were trying to go for some of the heavier ones again. Uh, the American Dobermans were looking different than a lot of the European ones, uh, having much more refined heads. It's fashion statements, and each time you start swinging from one fashion to another, you are again depleting the gene pool. And every time you do that, you will not get it back. No. Like when the fashion changes again, you don't have those genes that you bred out. It would be very easy to, say, lose the genes for red Dobermans. If you could find out, test, see, is every Doberman carrying a red gene? Get rid of it, and you would be very easy to get rid of it. I, now, chances are, even though it's a recessive trait, there's probably something to do with heterozygote superiority, where there could be something where having one black gene and one red gene could be doing something good for you. Yeah, It's, it's doing something else in there. It's there's things often that, we don't that way, where a recessive gene isn't just a silent, you no, know, trait. it's not silent. It and finding out that what we do know about certain things like with pigment, like with redheads and uh, red-coated animals needing more things like uh, anesthesia. It has to do with there's one gene doesn't do just one thing. Uh, the pigment will affect more things than we ever expected. Yeah. Like so, yeah, just what we were saying, it, things will go on and affect other things. Yeah. When I got uh, impaled in my head and I had to get 40 stitches and a, fr a friend of mine, Carol Taylor, shout out to you. I love you and I hope you're having a great life. But she was an OR nurse and she found out that I had gone in for emergency, whatever, and she came to assist. And they uh, gave me all this and this you know, local uh, topical anesthesia injection. But anyway, I think it was lidocaine, but anyway, it was really, really painful. The shots were really painful. And about, they said, don't worry, you won't feel anything for about 40 minutes. Well, 20 minutes in, Carol told the surgeon she can feel everything and they had to give me the same dose again. Now, I don't look like a redhead here, but uh, they could tell by my skin. Yeah, 
you had the redheaded traits. Yeah, I have, yeah. and I have a redheaded grandfather. And mm -hmm. when I frosted my hair, it would go very red gold. So anyway, um, when I got out of the anesthesia afterwards, I had a terrible refractory period where when I was being driven home, just the shaking of the car was excruciatingly painful. Mm -hmm. And I remember this, go ahead. This has to do with the amount of melanin on the sheath of the nerve fibers. Go ahead, explain. So it's uh, the red hair, we're not having, we don't have as much of the melanin. Even blondes usually have some dark hairs, some black hairs, redheads, don't produce that pigment. So yeah. we're not producing a pigment that's normally in the nerve sheath covering it. And because the lack of that, it is literally making the nerves more sensitive to it. Yeah, they're more likely to like two nerves next to each other. Neither has as much myelin sheathing on it. And one nerve, it has more of an effect on the nerve next to it than in the nerves of somebody with different coloration. Yeah. Kind of short circuiting. Yeah. So you talk about the red hothead. That may have something actually to do me. with it. Yeah. <laughs> that's more you than me, but yeah. yeah. And, and we are preferentially breeding lots of dogs to be red or gray. Mm-hmm or I guess they call it blue, but in any case, I find that like with border collies, blue Merle and red Merle are much more sensitive and more likely to be hyper aesthetic and have behavioral issues. And often like even bridging is too excitatory for them at first. They have to learn to accept the feedback of bridging. Well, with getting into the Merle genes, uh, you're getting into something where it's a spotted lightning gene. So it's almost like a semi-albino trait. With Dobermans, you've got the black and the red dogs, but when you get into the blues and the fawns, it is a lightning gene. And not so much the fawns, but the blues with this have a tendency to go bald. I don't know what the association is with the trait, but the blue gene, the blue dogs have a tendency to go bald. Wow. Um, and uh, so it is a lightning gene to go, go with it. And the Merle dogs, if they have any of the spots near the ears, they'll have a tendency again towards deafness. But then and I, when you, we get into some of the stuff with Temple Grandin talking about a lot of whitening, in various different species from cattle to horses or whatever, um, getting into chickens, you start getting too much white and you're gonna start running into animals that are unpredictable, they can be aggressive, but they get to be flaky. And it'll get to the point if you're breeding too much for any trait indirectly, you will run into neurological issues. Yeah. So just a note on what Julie's saying about a lightning effect. Um, another way it's expressed in, when you're saying genetics is a dilution factor. Yes. So people with blonde and red hair 
have a dilution factor and that affects uh, the strength of their physiological responses. So women, human women with red hair are much considerably more likely to have mastitis than women with brown hair. So that's just one little example, but it also comes down to uh, autoimmune diseases and getting cancer and all these different places where you think that you just wanted to have a unique colored animal. And in reality, you are creating problems for that animal. Now, to make it more complex, it may not be direct cause and effect. Like with the red hair, there's a direct effect on the nerves. However, there can be other things with it where redheads in humans are more likely to have salicylate intolerance because there will be, it's like lactose intolerance. They don't have enough of the enzymes to be able to uh, metabolize and excrete high pigment foods, tomatoes. Mm. If I eat too many tomatoes, I'll get a bad reaction. Mm. It's similar to aspirin poisoning because they're related chemically. But it may, not, it may not necessarily be that the red hair gene is similar to it, but it's genes that are passed in the same population. Okay. And it could have been a protective gene because it's more common in people whose ancestors are from Great Britain, parts of Northern Europe, places where during the winter in geologic times, there would be less vegetable food. Yeah. So it was a way to conserve valuable nutrients, but on a standard diet, plus the exposure of many chemicals that mimic it, it's now a toxic problem. Interesting. So like it allowed the people that had that gene to like get more out of the vegetables because they were more sensitive? Yes. Well, their body did not excrete a lot of these, the, the very chemicals that I'm reactive to our antioxidants. So right. you would want to keep the antioxidants around when there's not a whole lot of them in the diet, but when the diet is abundant into them, my body can't get rid of them fast enough. Got it. Interesting. So whether or not it's direct cause and effect or like the spotted gene with Dalmatians and the kidney stones, they were on the same gene, or excuse me, on the same chromosome, and they would get passed in a chunk, but the gene for spotting did not cause the gene for the kidney stones. Wow. So sometimes it's confusing. It yeah. may, they can get passed along together, but not cause an effect. No, it's very complex and very confusing because I don't care what genes you have, how those genes are read is a very complex matter that influenced by what you eat and what you experience and you know who knows what else and i know um it's possible that i'm missing an enzyme to convert cortisol so i found out that if i drank green tea it could uh, correct that and help my blood sugars so i drank green tea and my blood sugars went perfect for two days. And on the third day, they'd already started to wander up again. 
So was your body not processing the tea? Was there something in the tea? Was it, uh, uh, was, did your body wind up shifting so that it could up or down regulate? Yeah, that's so many the thing. The body will up and down regulate. And it's so complex. Like maybe there's something else in the tea. Like you talked about redheads and uh, antioxidants. And that's a good thing, but for a redhead, it's too much of a good thing. So the body would yeah. downregulate that perhaps, even though, you know, we're all trying to eat more of those. Yes. And so similarly, I'm solving one problem by drinking more green tea, perhaps. And, you know, it might cause another one yeah. that, that, how yeah. could you even know? It's one of those things where I've stumbled across this just from my data junkie uh, diving around into things to find out um, some of the things that have caused me issues. And it's frustrating because it is so complicated. Yeah. Wow. Well, I would like to talk about um, more about the traits of color and some of the things that come with that, that people may not be aware of. And to my surprise, we've actually gone for a bit of time here. And so I'm looking at what else we wanted to cover. And um, I'm wondering- yeah, I wonder if we should break and then do another podcast and pick up right where we left off. Are you up for that? That could be. That sounds good. Uh, in particular with color, what about some of the changes that happened with the fur fox experiment? Oh, I love that. Okay, folks, stay tuned and come back and join us again because we're going to do, we're going to continue this subject. This is so important for the animals we care about. All right. Thank you for joining us. Thank you so much, Julie. Great talking to you, Casey. Best to everybody. See you and soon. Hey, fans. Are you enjoying training with Casey? Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts from. Also, don't forget to subscribe to Casey Cover on YouTube. That is youtube.com forward slash C slash Casey Cover. Also give the podcast a like, share, and comment. Thanks for joining us. Come back for more news and views on animal training and living with animals. Stay at the top of the pack with Casey. This is Joseph Laughlin, producer of Training with Casey. See you next time.